Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversations, a podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Kendall Kosai, Director of Policy for ADL's Western Division. Since the first settlers came to the United States, this country has wrestled with its often dark past and relationship with Native communities, including their sovereign rights. In this episode, I speak with Heather Kendall Miller, a Native rights activist from Alaska and pioneer in the legal field. She spoke to me about her own history and what it means to be doing this work for her community today. Let's get started. So first off, thank you so much for joining me today. We're so incredibly excited for this conversation and can't wait to really dive in. So let's start by talking a little bit about yourself. Um, You carry so many titles and accomplishments, lawyer, teacher, mentor, trailblazer, advocate, the list really goes on. I would absolutely love to learn more about your early life in Alaska and how those experiences uh, shaped you to who you are today. Yeah, well, I am no spring chicken anymore. I'm 66. So obviously I've had a, a lifetime to process experiences. And like many people, I am to some extent a product of my upbringing and the environment that I grew up in. And I was uh, born an Indigenous woman, uh, one of three siblings to a mother, a Denina mother, and a non-Native father who had come to Alaska after World War II and and, uh, to explore. So my formative years were probably very much influenced primarily by the fact that I lost my uh, biological mother very early on in life. And my father remarried a non-Native woman who was Irish American. And she died at 104 in 2017. So just think about that for a moment. If you live to be 104 in this day and age, that's almost one quarter of the entire time that this country has been a country. So she was likewise raised with all kinds of belief systems and such that she inherited. And, and, And one of those was a racial bias against Alaska Natives. So although she was raising and and loved us as children, she also had an inherent bias against Native people. So my sisters and I always grew up uh, somewhat curious about what our life would be like if we hadn't lost our mother at such an early age. And that in part put me on a path towards early exploration. When I finally did get around to go to college, I wound up taking up many classes that explored um, all kinds of aspects of the Alaska Native identity. And that eventually led me to an introduction of federal Indian law, which then put me on the path towards law school. So it was all part of a self-education, a kind of an awakening into what that meant, what it meant to be Alaska Native. And then eventually once I discovered law, on the uh, the notion that I could potentially use law as a tool to be an advocate, to move the law, to change the law, and to enhance uh, the rights of Native people. So those were my early influences that put me in that direction towards law school. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because I think one of the most amazing things I learned when reading your bio is that in 1991, 
you became the first Alaska native to graduate from Harvard Law School. And according to the American Bar Association, there are less than 2,700 Native American attorneys in the United States, uh, comprising of 0.2% of the more than 1.2 million attorneys. So can you talk a little bit about that, the meaning behind what it means to be the, the first Alaska Native to graduate from Harvard Law and what that was like for you, right? That really pushed you to pursue that career. Sure. Well, you know, at the time, and we're talking about in, in the late 80s, I was intoxicated with the notion that a law degree could be this tool for social justice and change. And, and that was my intention in pursuing a law degree. And I had, you know, done well in school. And, and the idea of going to a big school was appealing to me because I knew that would open doors and create networks. Um, what I wasn't prepared for fully was extent to which um, Harvard Law School, as well as all other law schools, are institutions that carry with them a lot of um, historic bias and racism. And that was is not always evident as a young student that is assuming that one's education is going to break down barriers. It was a bit of a surprise to me to learn once I got to Harvard that there were no professors that had any background in Indian law, that there was no full-term professors that taught Indian law. So it was the kind of thing that I had to seek out for myself. I had to create opportunity and experience if I was going to pursue Indian law as a field and I did do that. But I, I would say that probably for me, the most stimulating experience that I had at the law school was not what the institution offered, because that wasn't very adequate. But it was other people and the aspirations of those individuals that happened to be there, similar aspirations that they wanted to use their law degree to change the world somehow. So I was fortunate in that I kind of wound up befriending a lot of really interesting and amazing young people that were determined that they were going to change the world in good ways. I had I was a classmate of Barack Obama, who, as you know, became president and many other very gifted young individuals. So although my experience in the law school itself did not inform my um, educational experience of social justice per se. The exposure to other individuals that wanted to nonetheless find ways of changing the world through law or policy or politics or, or some other reform that was a very heady experience and one that I took with me after graduation and continued to uh, connect up with over the years, individuals. Absolutely. I'm curious, you know, in going to, to law school, did you go in with the intent to, to work on tribal land issues or, or federal tribal issues in particular, or was that just kind of something that you naturally fell into as it was always probably a, an interest of yours? When I was in college, I began to pay attention 
to law. And, you know, as an Alaska Native person, I wound up being a beneficiary of the Alaska Native Claims Filming Act, which was passed in 1971. But no one, you know, if you're an Alaska Native person at the time, really understood what that was all about, why that was, and what it meant to be a shareholder in a newly formed uh, corporation. It was confusing. And what was the status? What was the lead? You could only really understand that if you were to delve deep into what is the legal basis? What is the historic basis for the relationship between Alaska Natives or Native Americans and the federal government? And in doing that, when you dive deep and you realize, and it's pretty obvious, you know, Indigenous people were here first. They were conquered and taken, removed from their lands, and their lands were taken away and given to non-natives and governments, state governments and such. And it began a whole couple hundred years of not just purposeful, intentional genocide, but all kinds of oppression. And so the more you dig into that, the more you realize that, you know, we've got a component of history that very much impacts the day-to-day lives of Alaska Native people. But at the same time, unless others are paying attention to that narrative, you know, it's not always something that others are aware of and may not have a lot of empathy for simply because potentially they haven't been exposed to that narrative before. Um, so, so I found that my, my education was both, you know, fascinating in terms of explaining how we got to where we were, but it was also totally frustrating and that it was not sufficient. It was not adequate. The law is not a perfect tool. It's a very difficult tool to achieve social justice with. And it's because it's built upon so many, many layers of essentially white supremacy, beginning with this country's constitution and declaration of rights and its treatment of both African-Americans and indigenous peoples. So when you start pulling all that, teasing that apart and looking underneath it, then you can see, well, you can go so far in using the law in certain ways to create change, but it's only going to get you so far. And then there have to be other ways of engaging if you're really going to make change. And that was kind of the arc of my career over time. Yeah, let's get into your career a little bit as well, because you you were staff attorney for the Native American Rights Fund for over 25 years. Can you talk a little bit about what the organization does and the kind of work that you did there while there? Mm-hmm. Well, the Native American Rights Fund is a nonprofit law firm that was organized in the 70s in, to some extent to offer legal services to Native American tribes specifically. Now, legal services had grown out of the uh, Johnson administration's war on poverty, and that national institution was created to provide services for poor people. Well, California Legal Services 
in giving services to Native Americans realized that Native American people had very unique legal issues and that the typical poverty law did not necessarily fit that. Tribal people, uh, in many respects, are members of sovereign tribes that possess authority over both their members and their territory. And that arises from essentially uh, treaties, promises that were entered into between the United States and tribes at the time that they were forced to relinquish their land. They were given treaty promises saying we will reserve to you certain lands and with a promise that we will forever educate, provide goods and health services And it's those promises, those treaty promises that are still very much alive today. And so legal services, when it would assist Native American people, recognize that there were some very unique legal issues. And so they thought that it would be helpful to establish a nonprofit that specifically did that kind of work. And that is how NARF, Native American Rights Fund, came into being. They opened up an office in Denver, Colorado, and then a small office in Washington, D.C., and then eventually in 1984, a very small office in Anchorage, Alaska. So I was aware of the work that legal services was doing when I was in law school. And the reason why I very much wanted to get a job with legal services is because, I mean, NARF was because NARF and legal services, the two organizations together were engaged in very high impact litigation at the time. And that litigation involved the question of whether or not tribes even existed in Alaska as sovereign intent entities, and if they did, what was the extent of their power or their governmental authority over members and over territory? Those are huge issues, big questions. So much turns on those. And it was all just playing out the kind of questions that we saw litigated in the 1970s in the lower 48. Big, big issues that went before the Supreme Court and the Burger Court. Those kinds of questions were only just coming to the fore in Alaska some, you know, 20 years later. And I recognized that, you know, my best opportunity to to really develop a skill in practice was to work with the best attorneys in that field, working for legal services and NARF. I was fortunate that an opening became available and I was able to slide in and was able to participate immediately in my first year in a couple of different federal trials and just went from there on. So during your time as staff attorney, and you, you mentioned that you were you know, involved in high impact litigation. One of the cases that you argued was in front of the United States Supreme Court, right? And you were also the first Alaska Native to argue in front of them. Can you talk a little bit about that case in particular and what it meant for you personally in your own life? Well, the case itself, as I just alluded to, presented a very important question of law, and that was whether or not tribes 
exist in Alaska after the passage of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which was passed by Congress in 1971. And that act was an extinguishment of what is known as Aboriginal title. Aboriginal title is a legal term that is used to connote the initial occupation, uh, use and occupation of Indigenous people of lands before non-Natives came and took over such lands. And generally, Aboriginal title is extinguished either by treaty or by conquest. Well, because Alaska only became part of the Union in 1958, the federal government had not dealt with the Aboriginal claims of Alaska Natives. And it was only after oil was discovered and the state wanted to lease its land did they realize you know, Secretary Watt of the Department of Interior said, we need to deal with these indigenous land claims before you can move forward and lease this land for oil drilling. And so Congress adopted the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And in doing so, Congress extinguished um, Aboriginal land title in Alaska and in exchange created uh, these newly created for-profit regional corporations and reconveyed 44 million acres of land to these corporations. So what happened is that Congress at the time said nothing about the prior existence of tribes. Now, there's a big difference between corporations and tribes. Corporations are businesses. They have to earn income to be able to essentially pay shareholders dividends. They are driven to make a profit. Governments, on the other hand, tribal governments, just like cities and state governments, provide governance. They care for the welfare of their members. Typically, they provide police enforcement. They provide safety measures. They regulate for the self health and welfare of communities. So there's a big difference between the two. And after the, you know, ANGSA, we had these corporations, but there was a question, do tribes exist? Do they continue to exist? So, and then of course, if they do, do they have authority to regulate activities on their lands? So those were the two questions that went up to the Supreme Court in the Venati case. And the court there ultimately held against the Venati tribe, holding that their prior existing reservation had been extinguished by the passage of Inksa in 1971. And that resulted in, in the tribe losing its ability to, in that case, enact attacks and regulate their land like, again, a municipality would do. At the time that it was accepted for review before the Supreme Court, it was pretty likely that we were going to lose. And the reason why is because I had won at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I had won a very nice little decision I was very happy with. And of course, the state of Alaska went ballistic, fearful, of course, of something it didn't understand or didn't know. And it, uh, the state of Alaska immediately requested the executive the governor requested $500,000 appropriation from the legislature, which the legislature granted. And with that money, 
the governor hired John Roberts, now the Supreme Court justice, hired John Roberts to bring their case to the Supreme Court. And the legislature appropriated another $500,000 and hired its own special expert legal team. So that's a million dollars of state payers, Alaska state paying money that went towards hiring a litigation team to fight Native rights in Alaska. So John Roberts, being the very capable attorney he did, he is, he got a review before the court. He had also clerked for uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist and, you know, had argumented cases and the court knew him well. The day I showed up for my oral argument, Chief Justice Rehnquist leaned over the podium and he looked at John Roberts. He said, John, tell me, how do you pronounce this word, venati? And John Roberts, to his credit, said, well, I think you pronounce it Vina Thai, but it's my opponent's client, so you should ask her. But that was a real illustration of this uh, boys club that exists and how, despite our best efforts, unfortunately, uh, the Supreme Court was very outcome-oriented. And it was clear before we even got there. So it was a heavy weight uh, for me personally to have to carry. It was a heavy weight. And of course, it, it very much became a huge policy issue within the state. And it really did pit Native people against non-Native people in a way that we hadn't seen in a long, long time. It was rough. And so a good part of my work actually wound up being public speaking, educational, finding ways to try to communicate with people to help them understand why tribal sovereignty is not something that threatens others, why it's a good thing, why being able to provide safety to women and children is a good thing. Why being able to assure that there are measures being taken to guarantee community safety is a good thing. I mean, that's essentially the basis for local government is providing for communities. And and yet, unfortunately, the state of Alaska at that time and and still even today um, felt that there was only room for state government, no tribal government. And in rejecting the notion that tribes have inherent sovereignty, they also rejected the notion that Native Americans have this distinct and unique history that goes back way before any arrival of non-Native people on this continent. I just absolutely find that story fascinating. And I think it's just another example about how, you know, this institutional bias inherently exists in a lot of our systems as well. So thank you so much for sharing that. And and so I I actually want to like expand a little bit upon that um, in talking a little bit about Alaska and a little bit about the indigenous population in Alaska. It's such a unique place and folks really rarely know how to recognize the incredible diversity of the indigenous community there in particular. So what should listeners know about the community or what are some of the things that you know people may have preconceived notions about or, or should really understand about the community in particular? 
Well, for one thing, Zen Alaska Native people are very much alive and well and present. They occupy. Alaska is a huge, huge state. It's bigger than, you know, many states put together. And yet this land, this beautiful, beautiful land that we occupy has been traditionally occupied by many, many different Alaska Native peoples. And those peoples are still very, very much here and with us, and their cultures are still very, very alive. They tend to uh, have a very close relationship with the natural world. They still rely on the natural world for their sustenance. They still have a very strong spiritual connection to the natural world and recognition that we are all connected and that we are the stewards of the natural world. And that is who we are as Native people. You can be Denaina, Inupiaq, Yupuk, you can be Clinket, you can be Haida, and you will have something in common with other Native American people. And that is that close connection to the natural world. And, and that is something that I feel that at this particular time, when the world is in trouble, when we are really on the, you know, looking over the edge of the cliff with respect to climate change, that's something indigenous people can offer the larger humanity is to help people remember how sacred the natural world is. And that our primary role is to help protect that and steward it because our only ability to survive turns on our how we care for the natural world. So it's, again, people should take the time uh, if they're going to come to Alaska to try to visit some of the locations or uh, learn a little bit about the history here or engage a little bit because you'll find that there are many Alaska Native people here that are very happy to share their story and their language and their culture. And, you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful culture that I feel like I am still growing into. I absolutely love your response there. I think that that's such a beautiful response. And I, I think the passion for the community is very apparent in, in a lot of the answers that you're providing today. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier about during your life, you've you tried to find ways to communicate and you've been really an outspoken advocate in Alaska politics. You know, can you talk a little bit about why that's so important to you and why you felt so compelled to speak up about a number of different issues in Alaska? Well, as I mentioned, law is only one tool for making change, social justice change. And I personally believe that it's very, very important for people to vote, to people to use their vote in ways to bring in individuals that are willing to make change, that are willing to commit to change. And so I have chosen to be active in politics and support various candidates and such as ways to hold up the importance of specific issues that I care deeply about and that I think with good leadership that we can make huge differences on. i give you just one example. The governor at the time that chose to fight tribes 
by hiring John Roberts and bringing the case to the United States Supreme Court, had to rethink that position. I had another case that came up quickly behind that. It was a big subsistence case. Uh, the name of it involved an aunt and a mat- matriarch named Kitty John. And uh, there again, I had won a good decision at the Ninth Circuit, and the state was threatening to, to try to seek to get that case overruled before the Supreme Court. And given our experience in the Tai case, we knew that that was a real possibility. So what we did is we mobilized people. We got people to go into the streets. We had rallies. We had marches. We did what we call the people, we the people march. We got people out. We educated. We just, you know, kept it, the conversation in the public eye until people started saying, why, why can't we also protect subsistence until people of goodwill started paying enough attention to realize that this was important for all Alaskans and how one treats others is important. And this governor's had a 20-year-old daughter who had been paying attention to what was going on. And she had a conversation with him and said, Dad, why? Why are you fighting this? And that made him think a little bit harder. And then he decided, well, maybe he should go and talk to Katie John herself, this older woman matriarch. And he did. He went out and he visited her in a very remote location in the St. Elias National Park. And he uh, sat on the side of her native allotment alongside the river where she had fished. And she told him her life story about raising her nine kids off of the land and her hard work. And she didn't do it on welfare or anything else. That was her way of life. And it was a life enriching experience that she wanted to pass on to her children and her grandchildren. And she explained to him, when you regulate and shut down my subsistence fishery, not only do we go without food, but I cannot pass on our traditional knowledge from one generation to the next. My grandchildren don't know the difference between a king salmon and a silver. That's who we are. We need to continue that. And he had an aha moment. And he decided after that to not fight that case anymore, to not seek review before the Supreme Court. It was one of those kinds of moments where you realize, oh, you know, we have to just keep trying to find ways of engaging and having conversation with people because sometimes it's all it takes just to move people a little bit forward in their understanding and their compassion and their empathy. So, yeah, that was that was a working watching, watching change take place one step at a time. So for listeners of this podcast, you know, who are thinking about how can they be engaged or to to learn more about indigenous rights and something that you, you know, you've dedicated your life to, to defending and advocating for, you know, what, what kind of advice would you give to others that are, that you've really kind of gleaned over the years of your experiences that of how folks can be allies or how folks can be involved or, or advocate for uh, indigenous rights in particular? Well, I think we've all learned a lot in these past few years. We've learned a lot from the Black Lives Matters movement 
And, and I, myself included, my God, you know, to be able to really drill down on what the life experiences for African-American people in this country is horrific. And we should each have to put ourselves in those shoes. Well, likewise for Native Americans and other people of color. I mean, in order to really understand, you know, how it is that our society has come to this point. We have a lot of healing to do, a lot of reconciliation. We have to be able to pull back the layers of white supremacy and start really looking at the uh, diversity uh, that underlies all that, the beautiful diversity. So there's lots of things that people can do. And, you know, it's not all uh, hard work. It can be joyful and wonderful. One of the things that I like to uh, recommend to people, I just found it to be such a lovely read, was a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kilmer. She's an Indigenous author, and she's also an ecologist and a professor. And she teaches, I think, in the University of Minnesota. But she's a poet as well, and she writes beautifully. And her book is a beautiful narrative about reciprocity between people and the natural world. And it just gives such a beautiful opening to a worldview that has been, you know, the indigenous world view is so ancient and is based upon so much traditional knowledge and observation from the natural world. And it's just a lovely read that without even knowing it, you're being opened up, you're learning, you're just taking down those boxes that we build up over the years. So that's one suggestion for inquisitive listeners that like to read. That's a beautiful book. And then again, for those that like to travel, think about when you travel, learning what the real place names are, right? The indigenous place names. And because the indigenous place names were always based upon intimate knowledge of place and what that place had to offer. So that's, again, it's fun, it's formative, and it's educational. Well, I've so enjoyed having this conversation with you today. I think it's been so enlightening about learning a little bit more about the Indigenous community, your life experiences. And so something usually what we try to do to, to wrap up the podcast is to end on a pretty light and positive note, right? So we always ask our guests, what is one thing that is currently bringing you hope? The last year has been last two years have been pretty tough, right? And so would love to just know what, what brings you hope in this moment? What, what brings you hope for a better community? I've got a lot of hope, Kasi. And part of that hope comes from my daughter. I've got a 24-year-old daughter who's a climate change activist, indigenous climate change activist. She just got back from COP, where she participated in youth organizations and the youth movement. I'm seeing that around me everywhere. These days, people are waking up, people are making choices, they are choosing to live in a world that is better than what we have inherited. And to me, that's where the hope lies, is if we, we can continue to, to work on 
waking up and waking others and sharing our narratives and sharing our stories and sharing our our joys and and such, then, you know, I got to say, that is what gives me the biggest, most hope. That's what gives me optimism. Well, Heather, I'm so honored to have you speak with us today. You know, Heather, you're a lawyer, a teacher, a mentor, a trailblazer, an advocate, and now you're a guest on the ADL Pacific Northwest podcast. So really appreciate all of you do for the community and looking forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you, Kazi. You take care. Best to you in the holidays. Thank you. Thank you.